Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a truly stellar edition of our show planned for you today. Great that you're tuning in. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. Stellar or interstellar? Ooh, interstellar. <laughs> is there a UFO block coming? The ship is landing <laughs> on Planet Rising, and here we go. All right. Well, first off, former Hunter Biden business associate and close friend Devin Archer spoke to Tucker Carlson in a new interview where he again accused the Bidens of influence peddling. Here he is on those famous, uh, those infamous, rather, speakerphone conversations. Joe Biden, who is very much a product of Washington, of course, must have known that he was calling in to effectively a business meeting that his son was having. I mean, he must have understood that that, that was kind of what his son was selling. Well, that's, I mean, it's hard for me to speculate on that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I guess my question, just to keep it to the facts, Joe Biden, then the sitting vice president, knew that there were Hunter's business associates in the room. Yeah, I think I can, I can definitively say at particular dinners or meetings, he knew there were business associates and he, you know, we, or if I was there, I was a business associate too. Yeah. Um, so I think, or if, you know, any of the other colleagues from the DC office or the New York office were there. So yeah, at times there were from the, you know, to be, you know, completely clear on the calls. I don't know if it was an orchestrated call in or not. It certainly was powerful though, because, you know, if you're sitting with a foreign business person and you hear the vice president's voice, that's prize enough. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty impactful stuff for anyone. It's, a, it's uh, been reported, and I, I know that it is true, that the Hunter and his brother were very close to their dad. Absolutely. Um, which I think is great. Yep. Um, I've got a lot of kids. I'm very close to them. Talk to them every day. Yeah. Never called them on speaker during a business meeting. That's weird. Hmm. Later in the interview, Tucker Carlson confronted Archer with a signed letter from Joe Biden. Let's see what it said. This is from the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, to you personally, and it's personalized here at the bottom. Devin Archer, Rosemont Seneca Partners, that was your partnership with Hunter Biden in yes. Georgetown. Dear Devin, I apologize for not getting a chance to talk to you at the luncheon yesterday. I was having trouble getting away from hosting President Hu, Hu Jintang, who was yes. running China at that point. I hope I get a chance to see you again soon with Hunter. I hope you enjoyed lunch. Thanks for coming. Sincerely, Joseph R. Biden Jr. P.S. Handwritten. Happy you guys are together. So there are many levels here. But here's the Vice President of the United States saying to you, a man in his mid-30s, who's not a government official, I'm sorry I was occupied with the guy who runs the world's largest country. I would much rather talk to you and thank you. What was he thanking you for? Well... Uh, you know, first of all, it's a lovely letter and it was, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite enthusiastic. It's a little weird though, right? Yeah. Well, it was, it, listen, it was, it was kind of the beginning of our partnership and he was thanking me and thanking Hunter, I think at the end of the day for bringing this idea of this government regulatory strategic advisory business into the private equity world. And I think he was excited about the prospects for Hunter and, um, you know, he was, uh, just, just thanking me. I think it was a nice gesture. All right, what did you make of this? I mean, it just, again, gets harder and harder and harder to argue that President Biden had no knowledge of or involvement in the dealings of his son. They're very close, extraordinarily close, which is totally proper. But, you know, this is confirmation, again, of the, the calling in to these, to these business media. Look, 
it's the meeting, Hunter Biden with other people, with this guy, Devin Archer, and other people, it's a business meeting because the business is influence. The yeah. business is demonstrating to financial interests that he has this relationship with his dad, that his dad is at his beck and call, and then his, they hear his, his dad's voice in, in, in this room where they're meeting. Like, that is a business that, meeting. That is that's what, what it the, is. And that's what they're trying to get out of this arrangement. I mean, honestly, Joe Biden just really dug himself in a hole yes. by starting out years ago by replying to these allegations by saying, I have never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. Right away, that didn't pass a smell test because that's like saying, I've, I've never talked to my mom about work. Right. Like, I've literally never... I'm supposed to have this close relationship, the way that they, they represent, they have a close relationship with each other. They talk constantly. In the last couple of days, we've seen any number of reporters point out that they were talking even more than usual during the relevant time period because of the tragedy of his elder son's passing. But despite all of that conversation, they never once talked about work. Well, obviously that was going to get blown up. And now we're seeing not only is that facially not true, but the later representations about his involvement on those actual phone calls is being exploded, exploded by the reality that there were other people on, that call, on those calls that can corroborate Joe Biden's presence. Now, we still don't have the substantive smoking gun that says that there was a scheme or that, that was, there was a bribe or that the, it went beyond the appearance of influence mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of, of Hunter. But having already basically lied, having already misrepresented his position to the American public, I don't know that the smoking gun is needed for people to yeah. concretize their distrust of Joe Biden and feel justified in voting for someone like well, Donald again, Trump, many, despite all the trouble he's in. And many in the media and many in the Democratic coalition were denying even that Hunter Biden was engaged in influence peddling, which is now so so obviously yeah. clear. We, we like That was what the entire business was. Yeah. Um, and it, it look, it was always going to be... Um, it's a it's a danger. It can be a national security risk. It can be a policy risk to have a, a an individual who's you know who's in a close personal relationship with the sitting vice president or president um, in that situation. And then you add on that it's someone like Hunter Biden who's also who's compromised in all sorts of ways for the you know the personal struggles with drugs and and uh, and everything else. Mm. This makes it worrisome. And and again, what it came down to, it came down to Ukraine. Yeah. Which were, which is what Donald Trump got impeached over, and which we're now, you know, help contributing to a war effort over. Yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah. you know, this was always going to be improper, but this is a highly relevant country with, with respect to the political decisions that Joe Biden is making. Yeah, I mean, what did you make of the, uh, uh, the, the part at the end where he asked, "What is uh, Joe Biden thanking you for?" Yeah, that's. I think that's a very good question. And Devin Archer, I, what, I didn't. What did you make of Devin Archer from watching this interview? I, he was a very. I almost. He, he seemed like maybe he was trying to have it multiple ways here, so like first, he, providing evidence that was going to satisfy the Tucker Carlson and conservatives of the thing they wanted, but also without like throwing the Bidens under the bus too bad because he's still friendly with them, but also like enjoying his moment in the sun, but also not you know getting himself in any additional trouble. So first of all, I, I think that what Biden was thanking him for was providing a gainful employment for, for his, his son. son. Yes. Like that's, that's what it is. It's like, I know that I have a troubled son. I wouldn't necessarily choose this guy as a business partner, but you're doing us a solid by yes. making him gainfully employed. The same way Bush did him a, so a solid by putting him on the Amtrak board. The same way the Bank of America did him a solid by hiring him right out of law school. Every, his entire career I agree with that is people so giving him a solid. Yes. Okay, now the tone, like what do we make of Devin Archer? 
I'm not saying that he's I, I don't I believe what he is saying about Joe Biden being on the calls, but I also think that he comes off as kind of slimy because he does seem to be wanting it both ways. He wants to say what a nice letter from Joe Biden. He knows that he's benefited from rightly or wrongly, legally or not, the generosity of the Biden family. And now he's quite obviously throwing up them under the bus. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't. Yeah. You know, if there was a crime or there was impropriety, then he should come out and talk about it. But he you know, this is a this is a he's doing this is kind of a backstabbing move. And there is another kind of person that would choose to, to continue to be allied allied with the Biden family and not at very least go and talk to someone like Tucker Carlson is so obviously politically disaligned right. with the Democratic Party at it large and Biden in specifically. Again, that's not a value judgment on, on the no. journalistic merit of it or who's morally correct. But in terms of interpersonal relationships, it's a, it's a slimy move. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, we'll continue to follow this and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Former President Trump is speaking out after being indicted on alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election. He is accusing the Biden Department of Justice of attempting to criminalize what he says is political speech. One legal analyst at CNN disagrees, saying that prosecutors may have been able to sidestep First Amendment concerns in their case against Trump. Let's watch. Part of what's remarkable about it is what Jack Smith doesn't do, because to Laura's point about his speech on the ellipse, Trump's speech on the ellipse. Smith doesn't charge the speech on the ellipse. How he has to talk about January 6th. He has to talk about the violence. That's the end game. How does he do it? He says Trump exploited the violence. He talks about the 2.24 p.m. Pence tweet targeting Pence and then the ways that Trump allowed the violence to further his scheme, including the calls that came in from the co-conspirators on that day to push forward, even through the violence with the rest of the thing. It's very subtle, and it sidesteps a huge amount of First Amendment litigation. Now, when it comes to arguments that prosecutors cannot prove Trump knew he was lying about the 2020 election results, here's what his former Attorney General Bill Barr had to say. Do you think he knew that he lost the election? Do I personally believe that? Yeah, at first I wasn't sure, but I have come to believe that he uh, w knew well that he had lost the election. And uh, now, what, what I think is important is the government has assumed the burden of proving that. The government, in their indictment, takes the position that he had actual knowledge that he had lost the election and the election wasn't stolen through fraud. And they're going to have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Which is a high bar, of course. It's a high bar. Now, that leads me to believe that they, we're only seeing a tip of the iceberg on this. You think Jack Smith has more? Oh, yes. I'm, I, I would believe he has a lot more. And uh, that's one of the things that impressed me about the indictment. It was very spare. And there are a lot of things he could have said in there. And I think there's a lot more to come. And I think they have a lot more evidence as to the, uh, President Trump's state of mind. Now, we spoke to attorney Alan Dershowitz about this yesterday. And here's what he said. Here they don't seem to have a smoking gun, a gun, or any smoke at all. Uh, they seem to have lots of people who are prepared to testify, who will testify. Donald Trump actually believed that the election was stolen. He was wrong. He was dead wrong. But uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has held repeatedly, there's no such thing as a false opinion under the First Amendment. If he had the opinion that he had won the election, uh, then the corruption uh, allegations uh, can't stand. 
So we w went on to talk with him about the comparisons to the documents case and how there people thought, well, those kind of that, that case might be weak as well if you you know, can't prove that he knew he shouldn't have had the documents. But of course, there ended up being this vocal recording of him saying, I know that this is a classified document and I know I cannot now classify it by kind of mm -hmm. executive fiat or, or, or oral statement or whatever. And so the question is, is Bill Barr right? Is there going to be evidence that is like that or similar to that that can speak more firmly to President Trump's state of mind? Well, well look, Bill Barr is certainly right that there's going to be more than was uh, simply alluded to in the indictment. And you're going to, I bet, you're going at the le very least, you're going to have people like, um, what was her name, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, you remember mm -hmm. her, it, you know, coming forward who will say, I believe Alyssa Farrah Griffin on The View has mm -hmm. said that in her time working in the uh, in the election period, she heard um, Trump make a remark that sounded like him conceding that he had actually lost. So you have people like that who can, you know, offer some evidence of Trump's mental state. The question, of course, it, will they produce something as clear as the recording of Trump himself in the documents case? So we, you know, we can't rule it out because I don't think any of us predicted that they would have that strong piece of evidence. But this is, I mean, I, I can't say it any better than Alan Dershowitz, obviously. This is the, the fundamental issue that is going to develop in this case. And I would not want to be in the position of, have, of my entire case resting on whether I can prove that actually Donald Trump doesn't think he won the election, because he has sounded like he really thinks that an awful lot. But I, I obviously I can't rule out, I don't know, maybe, maybe behind closed doors, they have some kind of evidence of that. And they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that he really did know. And that's, that's I mean, all the things he said are the saying part of it is obviously just protected speech regardless, but the the plan being put into action as right. being part of some vast conspiracy um, of crime doesn't maybe look as criminal if it's part of a you know sincere motivation in the way that you know George W. Bush and Al Gore's efforts in 2000 were part of their sincere belief that well, let's be really clear: the, the indictment doesn't allege or try to criminalize the process of discovering whether or not votes were taken accurately or counted accurately, anything like that. that there's, no, there's no prohibition. There's no attempt to criminalize the idea of filing a lawsuit to figure out, as so many people have done from Jill Stein to, uh, on down, mm -hmm. to figure out if the election re results were accurate. Uh, Stacey Abrams obviously has been doing that work in Georgia, and somewhat unsuccessfully, these voter fraud lawsuits. That's not what is at issue here. The question is whether or not, having received the evidence that exists, having done the research, having pressed and pushed uh, state elected election officials to who are Republican and aligned with Trump in many cases, to tell you if there was any fraud, to investigate whether it's any fraud. And then at that point, being told by those figures that, no, we really looked and we have seen nothing, and moreover, the specific evidence of fraud that you're bringing to us to investigate, whether it's briefcases full of ballots and the like, are completely unsubstantiated. And so what you have in the indictment is people saying, well, I, I, root for, I was rooting for you. I wanted to vote. I, I obviously hoped you, went, you won. But I'm sorry, despite all efforts, I can't find anything that would corroborate your view of the matter. You have um, co-conspirator number one believed to be Rudy Giuliani in the um, indictment saying, we have no evidence. 
I have a theory, but I have no evidence. And in these admissions, at a certain point, I wonder if, from a legal perspective, admissions that there is no evidence of voter fraud, corroboration from your politically aligned people, secretaries of states and the like, state election officials, say that there was no voter, voter, voter fraud. If you maintain a belief that you won an election based on no evidence supporting it and ample evidence to the contrary, is your subjective, completely out of touch, borderline sort of narcissistic commitment to your victory enough to shield you from legal liability for actively trying to interfere in an election and call up Raffensperger and call up secretaries of state and say, I don't need you to confirm whether or not I lost or won. Okay. I need you to specifically find as this number of votes that happens to be the vote margin between me and, and Joe Biden plus one. The, the, but again, the interference is not, he didn't, he didn't kidnap anybody's family members or break anybody's legs. The interference is conversations with state officials that I think reflect very poorly on him and reflect on the part of something that is absolutely not true. But I mean, this is what's going to be decided. But I am, I am troubled by how much in the indictment is he tweeted this, he said this, he said this at a rally. He said it's all it's 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 his speech. And they're saying there was enough of it, and it was connected to something that was so wrong, and then we're going to argue about whether he knew it was actually wrong and whether it was pressure rather than just speech. Um, I don't know what to tell you, Robbie. That stuff is color. There's always color in a That doesn't set up red flags for you? The, the, no, because the charge is what the charge is. Imagine this, Robbie. Imagine there's a murder case. That has nothing to do with anything. There's a dead body on the ground. This is not a speech issue. It's a tort. It's a murder. Is, are you saying that the indictment can't say so and so told so and so how much he hate the, the 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 defendant told someone else that they hated the murder victim? Well, some of that is hearsay, but you know what I'm saying. Any any evidence that they were talked about how much they planned to kill the person and confess that they that's but like, there's no murder. That's, the murder that's, is just that's speech. tantamount to saying a confession, entering confession into evidence is a speech violation because if you say you're, you should be allowed to express that you were you, you killed somebody. Of course, but there's no underlying murder. Help the, underlying, the, the, the murder here is just conversations with state officials. No, it isn't. There's there's a law that prohibits you from trying to tamper with election results. That's, that's what the steal, issue is. That's using that's fraud. And he didn't no, 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 steal no, no, no. any ballots. And he didn't smash any windows on the Capitol. I mean, look, I, but, but you know I'm giving voice the, to the concern but I have. But you know that's not what the, the plan was, Robbie. And we discussed this on the on the on the. Uh, last pod, at uh, the last episode, uh, yesterday's show, the 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 plan was to create enough ambiguity with uh, on the on the state level with people who are tasked constitutionally with certifying election results, so that they were unable to certify election results, not because the votes weren't accurately counted, but because he hoped that people would just lie on his behalf and say there was enough ambiguity to throw the question of the election straight to the House of Representatives who could vote yeah. based on a state basis as opposed to the Electoral College. I think the correct way to hold him accountable for the things he did was what they did. They impeached him, and he should have been removed from office but there's a, this is and the law. barred from holding your, office again. Your subjective belief that that's a way to, to, that to, is to the hold him accountable versus this way to hold him accountable. That is the answer to what he committed was conduct unbefitting of his office. Right, and that's what he's being charged with in a no, way that it would preclude him potentially. A criminal conspiracy. Yes. Yeah.
And well, yes. that's what we're going to find out. Just because you happen to think that there would be another way to hold someone accountable that would be good doesn't mean that the law, that he doesn't have to prove that he didn't violate this law that he potentially he violated. That he violate, they have to prove that he violated Sure, but he's he's the one on trial. And he's going, he's going to make the case that he did not know that he had lost the election, even though everybody in his well, orbit— He might make the case that he didn't lose the election. We don't have to wait what, what, he, what he says. Yeah, he still even, he persisted in that belief when he was interviewed by on CNN. And everybody in his orbit is going to be—who's who's basically admitted— we already know from the, from the relatively skimpy information that we have in the indictment that we know his co-conspirators— Acknowledge there is no proof. And if you're sitting there saying there's no proof that there was election fraud, there's we we even acknowledge we don't know that there's any evidence that there was an election fraud there was election fraud. On what what is the basis of your belief that you won? And I, I think you know that that you know goes to a jury and it's in DC mm -hmm. and uh, Dershowitz pointed out that he's probably gonna try to remove it to a more friendly jurisdiction for him. But I wouldn't write off also, given how sloppy and foolish so many people in his orbit, as well as Donald Trump himself, have been, that there isn't going to be a recording, an email, a text, or something that says, yeah, I know it's over, but we got to keep going. So that's, that's what is left to be discovered. Yeah. Did at any point Trump and or the co-conspirators, because they are likely to be separately charged, going to have committed to paper or voice recording their belief that they... There was no fraud, but they were going to try to create enough ambiguity to take the vote out of the public's hands of the American people and instead ask a bunch of elite millionaire, multimillionaire representatives, state by state in the House, to pick the president of the United States. That's the question. Right. That's it. I mean, again, that wasn't an election—there is a, a procedure, right, for the House picking the president if— there's no one gets a majority of the elect. Again, this is like a to say this is a criminal conspiracy. It, it's if you're it's lying about taking. triggering that procedure. Yes, if you well, are that's what we're fraudulently trying to induce election officials into fraudulent induce. Yes, yes, threatening and pressuring. He literally threatened Raffensperger on the call. We know that he threatened these officials, saying, you know, uh, I wish I had. I don't want to misquote him, but I, I wish I had the document in front of me right now. But yes, we, I think we it's know ambiguous that that's not... about whether it was a threat. All right. But we will continue to discuss this probably a lot in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. More rising after this. As Fauci steps aside, a new top dog is entering the fray. Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Jean Marazzo will become the new head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases beginning this fall, replacing Dr. Anthony Fauci, who held the position for the last 40 years. Marazzo has been described by critics as fanatical and an outspoken supporter of the COVID lockdown policy and mandates. Check out this supercut from Tech Judge. Please consider wearing a mask when you go out. You don't need to wear one when you're at home. Masks in young people going to school over the age of six, all the things we've been talking about, mask wearing, hand hygiene, and social distancing. Masks have contributed to the control of this pandemic in other communities. Even mask wearing, except when you're eating, you can prevent it with very good masks. The three basic rules, wear a mask, make sure you wash your hands frequently or use hand sanitizer, and keep your distance. 
All right, the lady loves math. Um, but the real relevant thing right now is um, we, we need to know, uh, she needs to be grilled about whether she supports doing the kind of um, research spending that we are all concerned, many of us are concerned, led to the creation of the pandemic? Is she going to be for transparency with respect to these grants and the decision-making process and proximal origins and all that stuff? Where, you know, it's the mandates and lockdowns are thankfully no longer in effect. So I, I, I care more now about getting to the bottom of the health, the federal health research apparatuses, um, whether they uh, really drop the ball on all that stuff. So that's what she needs to answer questions about. Yeah, I think that anybody who's hired by any administration should speak to those issues, um, especially since, you know, obviously Fauci is not a Biden-era phenomenon. He has been at NIH for 40 years under multiple yes. administrations, and he, at the beginning of the pandemic, had a very cozy relationship with Donald Trump um, before everything went partisan and sideways. So, of course, that's true of any new hire, given what we now know about the likely origins of COVID. Um, and given that, you know, Obama, as we've discussed at, on the show, had the wisdom to put the kibosh on some of this funding in a way that seems, in retrospect, very uh, yeah. advisable. Um, it is interesting, though, that despite there being these, I, I would agree, more significant issues with respect to funding of gain-of-function research. The outrage that I observed on Twitter did seem largely about masking, which is an interest. It's an interesting position, given, as you said, the mandates are over, and I'm not sure when those supercuts were, when the videos and the supercuts were filmed. Was it early in the pandemic when there was a broad consensus about? The, the hand, you know the, the utility of hand washing and masking they went back and forth on but it's I mean a lot of that stuff we, went back people and were forth trying on. to do what they could people do people were washing a, their groceries at the beginning right well hand washing is yeah. a good hygiene well, practice good that it should not be that controversial but that um, what was I going to say I mean was that a high quality mask hanging dangling dangling from her ear I don't no know it doesn't it, it doesn't look, it like, look like, it. like it and was. I I feel very strongly that the real sin here is not advising masking but conflating low quality cloth masks telling people to take two scrunchies behind their ears and thread a bandana through it um, were going to be useful and that was a conflation. That, sorry, the, yeah. the, the health officials said that that yeah. was good enough. That yeah, don't be terrible. too particular about what mask you wear. You gotta you, just any wet mask is good. Yeah, which is why it's so important to be clear that the high quality masks are the ones that are really effective. And I think there's some questions about why it is that the government has not been playing that up more and offered free high quality masks to the public, many of whom are low income workers who don't have the ability to social distance themselves and work at home and who are exposed still to this virus, which continues to have negative health outcomes. Nobody should be exposed to these kinds of things and should be able to protect themselves, especially now that there are no mandates in place. It all is about protecting oneself. And should there be more pu public um, awareness about the utility of high-quality masks and being able to do so. And in talking about low-quality masks and conflating them with high-quality masks, I think has led to broad distrust of ma masking in general and a broad, inaccurate feeling that they're, generally speaking, useless. Right. Well, again, for the—I mean, they were of—I think of— I mean, there's there's debate about how useful certain kinds of masks were at certain stages of the pandemic. Obviously, the initial strain of COVID was less infectious than the subsequent stages. Um, 
So I know some public health officials, um, like Dr. Leanna Wen, changed their mind about how urgent and important it is to wear masks um, when confronted by new variants that, in her view, may make the possibility of largely preventing yourself from getting the, the infection um, no longer a, a feasible public health goal. Wait a minute, you're saying the change in variant affected the effectiveness of masks? Certainly it did. What's the argument there, that the new variant is like smaller much, and more porous? No, there was much more infectious. There, there, there's a higher viral load if you are infected and contagious, and there's more it, in the it, air? It was much more, I mean, it, that's, uh, that's not a controversial statement. The subsequent variants were like eight times or ten times more infectious. Than but the, a, mask, the, a mask is a barrier, so it's not— well, unless, It's not a perfect barrier. Well, that's part of the issue. Depending on the quality of the, of the mask, right. they can get very close to being very, very good. But those differences and being fit for a mask as opposed to just wearing it off the shelf also affects the uh, the efficacy of the mask. There's a lot of things that go into it. But that's a little bit like saying, depending on the mask, like if you're, if you're saying there's more viral particles in the air from one strain than another, I can see how that, on a percentage basis, is going to make it less likely, more likely for you to get I, I infected. Don't know if that's, but that's not an argument against wearing a mask. I don't know if that's it's still the lowering reason your, it's more. I don't know. I don't know what the biological reason for the subsequent strains being more infectious is. I don't know. if It's because the the I, I th my understanding was because the viral particles are more they, like they just attack your immune system more effectively once you've once it gets them or something. through the mask. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Interestingly, so Dr. Morazzo doesn't need um, any uh, Senate confirmation, any approval. Uh, interesting. Another. Another uh, nomination. Uh, uh, Monica Bertagnoli. She's actually being held up right now uh, because Bernie Sanders doesn't want to hold a hearing for her until the White House commits to stronger action, lowering uh, drug prices. He's Love doing to see. his own. Uh, <laughs> well, but isn't that what everybody's mad at? Um, uh, Tommy Tuberville for holding up some confirmations for some personal policy grievance or something? Isn't that similar? Look, if you think Tuberville's desire to restrict health access for our service women, um, reproductive health needs for our service women is equivalent to Bernie Sanders trying to lower prescription drug prices for all Americans, well, that's your value. But I think a lot of people are mad at Tuberville because he has a very fringe political position here, and he is holding up the these kind of uh, military promotions and the like, and Bernie Sanders is holding up an appointment of a position I mean, that's right. long the, been empty. The agency has an acting director. It is proceeding yeah, with in its order work. to prevent people from dying because they can't afford their prescription medicine. Well, as an example of the pushback that may come towards Dr. Marazzo, last March, Senator Rand Paul introduced an amendment to eliminate Dr. Anthony Fauci's position as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and replace it with three separate national research institutes. He said in a statement, we've learned a lot over the past two years, but one lesson in particular is that no one person should be deemed dictator in chief. No one person should have unilateral authority to make decisions for millions of Americans. And Dr. Fauci's authority here was extremely vast by virtue of how long he'd been in the position. Yet you mentioned earlier the pause on gain-of-function research that uh, President Obama implemented. Uh, it had some exceptions, unfortunately, carved into it. And Dr. Fauci has testified, and it, it came before his death, that he was like, yep, that's an exception. We'll keep doing this. We'll keep doing that. He can't remember exactly which projects he might have signed off on or with the papers where they are. Very convenient. Um, the, the 
I think the need to prevent, um, uh, well, although I don't know if it's, if it's one agency broken into three agencies, if they still have the same philosophy that they should be shielded from all accountability and continue to fund and advise um, dangerous research that many others in the health community think is fraught, then it, w it doesn't matter if it's one agency or three. But um, I take uh, Senator Paul's point. Yeah, it'll in be interesting to see what there is to really be done about it. Some, you know, people, administrative, I, I, I don't know, like, I know that you're coming from the perspective of, well, then there should be no one in charge and laissez-faire everything and we'll all just live in our castles. But like most people think oh. that there needs to be some kind of public health apparatus. They want folks, they want somebody with some expertise in disease management to be offering guidance and advice. Fauci says that so many of the things that he offered up were not, he didn't have the ability to force anybody to do anything. He, he offered advisory opinions that have a lot of influence because people who are not experts don't really want in the middle of a pandemic pandemic to say, oh, my independent thought and feeling about how this should go should rule over someone who has medical expertise. And I, you know, the effect is that those advisory opinions had a lot of sway, but I'm not sure given that he was not actually a dictator and that his opinions did not actually impose themselves on the choices that were made by various states, what to really do about that uh, outside of getting rid of the CDC and these um, institutions entirely and letting it be each man for himself. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Are black voters ditching the Democratic Party? While this group has historically supported Democrats, showing up for Joe Biden back in 2020 in a make-or-break contest in Georgia that put him in the Oval Office, for example, almost four years later, polls show that black voters are checking out, particularly black men. Now, that's all relative, of course. The overwhelming majority of black men still vote for Democrats. But a recent Reuters-Ipsos poll found 18 percent of black Americans would pick Donald Trump over Biden in a hypothetical matchup, compared to 46 who favored Biden uh, which could dramatically impact the outcome of an election in which every vote counts. However, it doesn't seem that Democratic Party leaders are taking these warnings especially seriously. Congressional Black Caucus PAC Chair Rep Gregory Meeks said of the upcoming election, quote, let's be serious. Black folks know there are two choices in this election. Moreover, according to the Democratic establishment and the mainstream media, the rise of insurgent third-party candidates like Cornell West are an added obstacle. Here's what White House reporters for Bloomberg, Akela Gardner, said on MSNBC. Let's watch. People are just frankly not running and jumping about another term of President Biden, and they're frankly keeping their options open. Certainly strategists have raised concerns about third-party candidates, not just Cornell West, but also the Snow Labels candidates that we're hearing about. But I think the thing that the Biden world is banking on is Donald Trump. Their hope is that if he is in fact the nominee, that will galvanize people in the same way that it did in 2020. There was voters who purely cast a vote against Donald Trump, and they're hoping that threats to democracy and him being on the ballot again will have the same effect that it did then. Is Trump enough to scare people to the polls? According to Reuters, quote, many advisors to Biden downplay the threat that Cornell West holds in pulling away black voters, pointing to Biden's record in appointing both the first black female vice president and Supreme Court justice. Seems like they're doing everything that kind of irks you, uh, to, to put it mildly, in terms of just assuming and taking for granted um, the votes of black people, or thinking they can mollify black voters 
by doing the most um, surface level outreach, by which I mean, oh yeah, we have a black vice president, so we're good, right? It's even worse. There's a news story in Politico that is talking about some of these anxieties from about third party uh, candidacies. And um, uh, apparently, there's a belief—this is a quote from the article—there is also a belief among CBC Congressional Black Caucus members that the drive to elect the first black speaker, minority leader Hakeem Jeffries, would be a motivator for black voters, too. How many Americans can name yeah. who the minority leader is? Right, and be, not specifically black Americans, just Anybody. all Americans. <laughs> And, and it would take me three and, seconds. I won't. I won't get the. I'll get the name, but you know what I mean. And if you know who Hakeem Jeffries is, you're presuming that people like him. He's someone who spent the last few years of his career raising money in super PACs, explicitly targeting progressives that are Democrats, particularly progressives of color like Elon Musk and Ilhan Omar, etc., because they support policies in line with rights for Palestinians and don't want unconditional aid to Israel. And he has done more, I think, and been more vocal about his advocacy for the Israel lobby than he ever has for the interest of black Americans. So the idea that we have to protect Hakeem Jeffries, of all people, is laughable, beyond even the name recognition point. This is, this is, this is terrifying to Democrats, because not only is there a third-party challenger, there's a black third-party challenger. And so much of the rhetoric that has been deployed against the left since 2016 has been, oh, they're Bernie bros. Oh, they're just these white guys living in their parents' basement. Hillary Clinton, who, shocker, is also white, was put on a pedestal in 2016 as somehow the, the voice of black American. Uh, what did they call her? My abuela, Sister Hillary. All of these kind of things were meant to polarize the public to believe that the left movement was a white movement, and if you really cared about the interests of people of color, you would vote for the woman whose policies led to open slave markets in Libya. But we're not in 2016 anymore. And moreover, instead of having just a black VP like Jill Stein had in Ajamu Baraka, the head of the ticket is not only a black man, but one of the most famous and well-regarded politically and academically black intellectuals, public intellectuals of any race, in the United States of America. Someone who has demonstrated an ability to talk across the aisle, have cordial, productive conversations with people like Candace Owens, um, who treats people and engages with people principally with, with principle, but also with a lot of respect, and who could have a broader reach and is di more difficult to condemn as simply a nameless, faceless spoiler to some other people who might throw their hat in the ring. Yeah, I can understand why. Uh, I would understand them being concerned, although it sounds like they're not concerned. They just think they are owed uh, the black vote. And, you know, you can't discount, like, as you point out, the, the number of black voters that Republicans are getting, that, like, Donald Trump is getting, it's, it's very low. But Every year, every cycle, it's like a little it's less a little low than more. the cycle before it. Uh, yeah. As as um, race is actually becoming somewhat depolarized, as like educational achievement and income level gets more polarized. Um, yeah, it's I very mean, interesting. Historically, black voters came into the Democratic Party is because the Democratic Party was protecting our voting rights. And right, substantively, I suppose that's still true. Technically, I mean, not, I mean obviously, for the first. You know, from 19, from 1860s uh, until I think up through was what the Republicans got. You know, the 
vast, vast, vast majority right. of the there black There was realignment. Vote. Then there was a realignment. When the, the Democrat, yeah. you know, the, the Republican Party made an explicit pivot um, to try to pick right. up Dixie, Southern Dixiecrats who were frustrated I think, but by I think integration. Even in, yeah, I think even up and to, up to, to the, like the kind the of racist segregationist South. 40s and 50s, it was pretty split. Right, but it's been a long time yeah. since then. And so the point is that if Democrats are not being perceived, one, if you don't perceive there to be a significant threat to voting rights, People can subjectively feel how they want to feel about that. And two, if we think that even if there is a real threat, the Democratic Party, one, is either isn't doing much about it, or two, can't do that much about it because the co composition of the Supreme Court, then are there diminishing returns for voting for Democrats? And also, are black people tired of their entire interests politically being boiled down to voting rights? Mm -hmm. There is a way that the Democratic Party talks to and about black people that feels like our concerns are frozen in 1965. So it's not that those rights and interests aren't important, but why? Do, what is the pitch to black voters? It's, liter it's literally, it should have been, it was a little bit in Georgia. Now we know it was a lie and of like a fraudulent inducement to the polls, basically. But you have disproportionate amounts of student debt. We're going to cancel your student debt. We're going to give the $2,000 checks, um, you know, those kinds of things that didn't come to fruition. And I remember hearing some activists, some, some, uh, some door knockers in Georgia being interviewed, I think actually on Cornell West's old podcast, uh, shortly after uh, Biden won in 2020, saying, we pulled it out for him, I, for Biden. I don't know that we're going to be able to do that again. We wasted, wasted all our political capital. We spent all our political capital getting Biden to win this time. It's not going to work again. And remember what Biden told black voters in 2020. If you are undecided at this juncture, if you're not going to vote for me, you ain't black. Yeah. Look what happens to Ice Cube every time he even suggests that there be an agenda for black Americans that the Democratic Party actually attend to beyond the idea that, oh, we're better than Trump and, oh, voting rights are on the table. Well, 2024 Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. may have an uphill battle with this key voting bloc. In recent conversations on the Math Hoffa's podcast, he defended why he's against reparations. Let's listen. If there was no other, if there was no other issue, I would be against cash payment reparations. But the word reparation means repair. And, you know, I grew up in a Jim Crow and I saw this was not just, the, the injury did not end with slavery. The injury and the deliberate suppression, the institutionalization of poverty in black neighborhoods is uh, systematic, it's systemic, and it, it, uh, and it continues today in a million different ways. Mm. And we need to rebuild the, the uh, black communities. And, and so that, you know, but my approach to doing that would be to do it in a way that I think is going to be most effective, which is what we did at bed -Stuy. We created what we call a community development corporation there, and it is now the model for hundreds of community development corporations around the country because it works. So he went on for a long time answering that question about reparations, uh, and his answer was no. Like, there was a lot of words that were like, I see you, I understand you. I don't know that I've ever heard RFK Jr. sound more like Hillary Clinton than he did in that response. A lot of kind of platitudes to make it sound like you're saying the right thing. I really understand your concerns. I really understand why you're in this position. I understand the way that you're wrong, but also I'm not gonna do the thing that you wanna do about it. Here's what I think would help in my subjective opinion. And at the end, one of the men in that room really did push back quite effectively 
on RFK Jr.'s position. But here's the bottom line. You cannot believe in reparations. You cannot support reparations. But black people also don't have to vote for you. And that goes for reparations and any other policies that would disproportionately affect the interest of the black community. And there should be no expectation that black people are the ballast for the Democratic Party and the most dependent voter bloc, without which they could never win any election ever, without there being some material returns. And Biden could have started by not sabotaging, I don't know, the $15 minimum wage, which I remember the stat from the Bernie campaign. I don't want to misquote it, but I do believe something incredible, like 33% of black Americans would have benefited from a um, minimum wage raise. Mm. We'll have more rising right after this. Well, in the Republican contest, Ron DeSantis might be losing ground not just to Trump, but to Vivek Ramaswamy, the conservative media personality. Candace Owens has hailed Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign, tweeting on Wednesday, quote, congratulations at Vivek Ramaswamy. Everything DeSantis's campaign promised to be is what Vivek's actually is. He is running a classy campaign, earning respect by giving respect to Trump supporters. Without a doubt, DeSantis failed because of his influencers and comms team. She also included a graph from a survey, survey taken by Kaplan Strategies showing Ramaswamy is now neck and neck with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, both getting 12 percent support from voters. Donald Trump is the front runner, eclipsing his rivals with 48 percent support. So Ramaswamy definitely coming on strong. Um, I came out of nowhere. Uh, nobody knew who he was, really, until he started running, unless you watched Rising, because we have interviewed him here. Uh, you know, he's, he's one of those people, you know, like RFK Jr., like other um, outside the political establishment challengers who've done well promoting themselves by appearing on a lot of web-based shows and podcasts, etc. Um, and he has found a way to um, court Trump supporters in a way that doesn't turn them off, despite he's running against Donald Trump, ostensibly. But um, he, he gets—I I think what Candace Owens is getting at is that he seems to— speak more naturally about um, the issues that are really animating the, the right-wing base right now, the weaponization of the federal government, um, free speech issues in big tech, um, all of those kinds of things. There's a, a, a—you can see from the poll numbers, something is resonating. There's a, there's a sincerity there that is, is uh, being appreciated in a way DeSantis isn't you know, capitalizing on what was perceived to be a very good record in Florida. Yeah, he has run framing himself as a Trump but harder, saying that Trump didn't go far enough on some of his America First policies. Um, he has really escalated offering as policy proposals, for example, raising the voting age to 25 unless certain requirements are met. Um, he proposed arming and training every household in Taiwan to protect against uh, an attack from China, saying at an NRA conference, quote, you want to stop Xi Jinping from invading Taiwan, put a gun in every Taiwanese household, um, which I think there's some question about what that means in terms of our well, military funding. Yeah. Um, he has been uh, critical of kind of unlimited aid to Ukraine, which is a popular issue among the more independent-minded people on the left and the right. But most people on the left also broadly want there to be a decline in military funding and a shrinking of our military and imperial apparatus, whereas some conservatives seem to want to lessen it in Ukraine but escalate elsewhere in the world. So that's something that I think he'll have to negotiate. But interestingly, Donald Trump has given him a positive nod on several occasions. And I wonder if that will start to change if he becomes a genuine threat 
you know, the number in the number two spot uh, among challengers as than the same way that happened to Ron DeSantis, who I think it became very clear at a certain point that they were never no longer able to have this kind of vague allyship that they had had before Ron DeSantis actually entered the race and started pulling. That so might highly. not happen for Ramaswamy. I mean, maybe he I mean, he's, you know, running to make a name for himself and get his message out there. But he, he unlike DeSantis, could be a number two choice, theoretically. Oh, you mean as a VP? Oh, yeah. I just meant that. Once he is yeah. the number one challenger, is Donald Trump still going to say yeah. these friendly things about him, or is a competitive instinct that we've seen so often from Donald Trump going to kick in? Trump will never, obviously, never pick DeSantis to be VP. There's too much actual acrimony there. Um, and and DeSantis, if DeSantis somehow defeated Trump for the nomination, he would never pick Trump to be his VP. I mean, Trump's not going to be VP to anyone. Uh, but that that's, I think that is why their, their dynam dynamic is particularly um, unpleasant. Whereas all the rest of these people, not again, not Christie, um, are, are not are not going so hard against Trump that they couldn't be picked to be his VP. Yeah, I mean, another question is if he does become more, a more prominent contestant in this race and get more media coverage, how are some of his more extreme views going to be viewed by the broader public, including Trump's own audience? The Washington Post reported a while back that young Republicans were very upset by his um, efforts to raise the voting age to 25. There's been a lot of controversy around his desire to end uh, a birthright citizenship, with, which people across the political spectrum see as a kind of indifference to our constitutional principles, and also perhaps hypocritical, given that his ability to run for president as a first-generation immigrant or child of first-generation immigrants is contingent on the reality of birthright citizenship. And is this an, a, an issue of someone trying to pull the ladder up behind them and shrink rights that they have themselves have benefited from? And I would say to, that's a good thing. Um, so, you know, is this going to be one of those DeSantis situations where he starts to wilt a little with more attention, not because of some of these personality defects that Ron DeSantis has, a lack of charm, awkwardness in social situations, I think Vivek Ramaswamy presents very well, but because the policies that he seems to be foregrounding, some of them are popular, like, are popular in this yeah, section. Yeah, I think the like, things you described are popular with the right-wing base, for you sure. You think raising the voting age to 25 is a core issue in getting rid of birthright citizenship? I would believe that would be popular with a lot of right-wing primary voters. Um, I don't think raising the voting age is necessarily any, something people are really just thinking about in right. general. Just but like he's people talking aren't really thinking about wokeness about, and Disney and, and focusing well, on those not, kinds of things and not the material are. uplift of the American people. I mean, this is someone who's largely self-funding his campaign because he made a fortune in biotechnology and pharmaceuticals. I mean, he talks a lot about lifting people up economically. You you won't like or agree with the policies that he proposes to do that, but he what talks a lot about opportunity. I mean, he's unapologetically pro-free market, pro-capitalism. He thinks less government intervention in our economy will and, and rise that, all the— how is that going to um, raise the fortunes of poor working-class people who are facing the crisis of automation, incredibly high housing costs that have risen, what, 40 percent over the last 30 years? <clears throat> Excuse me. A failure to raise the minimum wage since 2009. I mean, the people who are in that cohort, many of whom liked Trump because he did make a full-throated critique of the trade policies that sent so many American jobs overseas, you know— is there a connection between what Vivek Ramaswamy, someone who went to Harvard, 
was in my class, who has made millions and millions of dollars in a sector that is very distrusted now in America, one, because of the healthcare crisis, and two, because of COVID. That's the biotechnology and pharmaceutical sector, mm -hmm. going to make a pitch to working-class Americans that he knows what the prescription is to actually uplift them materially. Well, you'd have to ask him, but I think he thinks the policies of generally having a less regulated economic system will make goods and services cheaper and we're all consumers and raises the quality of living that way rather than a what more can the government do for you in terms of handouts and structuring your life and all that sort of thing. All right, so the pitch is no more handouts for you, trickle-down economics. We'll see if that helps uh, Vivek Ramaswamy continue to rise in the polls. We'll help her rising. What do I what? I mean, what do you think conservative, that's what, again, he's running for the nomination of the Republican Party. We're talking about yeah, but, what but is raising Trump his standing. Yeah, but even Trump didn't do that. Donald Trump ran on free trade was bad, and I'm not going to cut your Social Security, and we're going to end endless wars. That's a populist pitch. Now, whether or not he was honest about that, whether or not he actually executed that when he was in office, that's a populist pitch. And, you know, he had an ability to seemingly recognize, talk to the regular Americans, inveigh against elites. Well, I don't know that Vivek, all, all again, I'm not, and I'm not like a Vivek campaign surrogate, but I don't know that he has any differences with Donald Trump on those issues you just mentioned. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But the focus that he has chosen to foreground in his campaign, I, I'm comparing him to Ron DeSantis because Ron DeSantis made choices about how he wanted to brand himself, and he chose wokeness. And it doesn't seem like that's going very the well. The focus he's choosing for himself is, I mean, he keeps talking about defunding the FBI or yeah, shrinking, vastly shrinking the that's FBI. That's a good one. He also wants to... I think he's matching to... the moment in terms of, of, of Republican interest in shrinking the part of the federal bureaucracy that is targeted at Americans, some conservative Americans, dissident, contrarian Americans in terms of their free speech rights. I, just, I agree with defunding the FBI. Yeah. I don't actually think that's a mainstream belief even among Republicans. It's not. Most, most Republicans, most Democrats, the establishment loves the FBI. They love the military. They, these things, we have to be clear about what it means to run on a national stage versus what it means to be able to get enough online support to get to 12, 13, 20 percent of the vote. RFK Jr. was able to ride that for a certain period of time. You can consolidate a certain amount of the vote. But are you going to be able to get enough people together and invested in you who have less fringe interests than defunding the FBI, or he also wants to defund the Department of Education. You know, with people in their, having their kids in schools that aren't able to go to private schools, the likes of which Vivek Ramaswamy was able to avail himself of, are they going to have the guarantees with his administration that their kids and their educational opportunities are going to be taken seriously? Is the free market laissez-faire situation for elementary, middle school, and high school students in the United States of America, what voters are really looking for, even if they do agree that there should be some reforms that they don't like the teachers' unions or what have you. And there was you. government funding of public schools before the Department of Education existed. It's not getting rid of the vast federal bureaucracy that would actually free up more money to spend on actual students and kids is, I think, the I, pitch. I, I don't think that that's his pitch, but I'm look for, looking forward to hearing more directly from him, hopefully, once again, on uh, this show. More rising after this. 2008's favorite bromance has signs of a little trouble in paradise. Former President Barack Obama recently warned President Joe Biden about GOP rival Donald Trump and his strategies, including having an iron grip on a loyal base. This according to a new report in The Washington Post. In a private lunch at the White House that took place in June, Obama also vowed that he would do everything in his power to help Biden's reelection effort. Here to discuss further is Michael LaRosa, former press secretary for First Lady Jill Biden. 
Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Yeah, so, course. you know, if, fill us in on you know, what the state of the Obama-Biden relationship is now, to the best of your knowledge. Well, it sounds pretty good. He was over at the residence for lunch a couple weeks ago, and I think they were having, you know, a pretty candid conversation and a pretty pragmatic conversation about the next election. And I think it's important that uh, what Pre President Obama said to President Biden, that all Democrats here, that you can't take this guy um, lightly. He has a loyal base, a loyal following, a cult-like following who will show up and show up in big numbers. And um, we have to work on doing the same with our folks and energizing our folks. So I, I think it's important that Democrats hear that message right away and that we don't take anything for granted. I mean, I think that's right. I, so much of the pushback, especially from the far left, further left uh, section of the broad <laughs> left, is that there's been a lot of blaming of voters who don't seem to appreciate that Biden has actually done a good job. Mm -hmm. We hear Bidenomics and the response is, well, why don't these why don't these disgruntled leftists, why don't the disgruntled liberals or independents who are saying they're going to stay home or choose one of these other candidates, mm -hmm. why don't they understand that Biden has actually been good for the economy? And the pushback has been, OK, well, there have been longstanding issues. Uh, a failure for wages to keep up with inflation. People are struggling in various different kinds of ways that are separate and apart from what anybody does in a four-year term. And so what how, what is Biden going to do to actually convince people that there's going to be real material changes in the next cycle and that it's not just another kind of vote blue no matter who, you got to come out for us because D Donald Trump is an existential threat sort of a pitch? Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I don't know if there's going to be much of a—you're going to see much of a change in, in direction or tone. I feel like the White House was pretty empowered after the, the midterms, which had historic turnout, but also um, the overperformance uh, for Democrats was historic for a presidential uh, midterm for, in their own party. And so they feel pretty validated about accomplishing substantive things that Democrats have been trying to do for decades that were not done, like student loans, like climate legislation. But, but on the student loan point, I would argue yeah. there's a lot more but he's animosity as a— uh, well. He's trying to deliver. And, and the bottom line is, it's early. Democrats will start being juiced up when they have a foil to run against, when they know it's a rematch, when they know who the alternative. It's ultimately a decision um, and a choice between two different people. And Democrats have to decide, you know, what choice they're going to make. Well, Mike, Michael, you just opened up a whole can of worms. <laughs> because, yeah. first of all, many people are frustrated that even though this is, in fact, primary season, there is already this presumption uh, that Joe Biden is the only candidate, that there don't need to be any debates. The media largely isn't acknowledging the existence of certainly Marianne Williamson. R.K. Jr., because of his polling numbers, has kind of forced himself onto the, the national stage, and he is recognized by the press, but only in a very dismissive, uh, derisive sort of a manner. Yeah. So one, the idea that there's just two choices is already something that people are frustrated by and skeptical about, especially since huge percentages, majorities of Democratic voters even, and overwhelming majorities of all Americans, don't want to see this Trump-Biden matchup mm -hmm. again. That may not have a choice. <laughs> so, then, so then what is your pitch? Because you brought up student debt, but obviously well, that student debt policy let's, let's was later. thwarted let's, by the court. Let's talk about like where we are at this point. Sure. Okay? We are at a point where uh, in 1992, uh, that incumbent president was being challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, 1995, the governor, the sitting governor of Pennsylvania, Robert P. Casey, 
was challenging President Clinton. People have, people forget these things. Mm. And in 2011, Harry Reid had, reportedly had to talk Bernie Sanders off the ledge from mm -hmm. primarying President Obama. We are at a very normal stage where, uh, you know, Candidates are popular. Governing isn't always popular. Governing, governing is harder and it's more divisive. Like Mario Cuomo said, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. Uh, there's a right now people are venting. A small pocket of people are vent of, of Democrats are venting their frustration that there isn't an alternative. But look, there usually isn't. He's the leader of the party. He's going to be the can. He's going to be the nominee, um, and he's ultimately going to face uh, like any other incumbent. Um, no other incumbent would. Uh, engage in a debate with a with a weak challenger or a nominal challenger. Maybe not. Trump is also not engaging in a debate, but the RNC is still holding debates, and the other candidates do have an opportunity to bring their case to the They American don't have public. an incumbent. And President Trump, at this point in his cycle, was being primaried, I believe, by two ex-governors and one ex-congressman, much more serious candidates than President Biden has, and he didn't do any debates. No, you can say well, serious or not serious, but the last polls show that they had a combined 30 percent of the uh, votes. Now RFK Jr. has come down to 13 percent, Marianne's at 10 percent. Both are pulling higher than every single person in the Republican field against Donald Trump, except for Ron DeSantis. And now in the most recent poll, Vivek Ramaswamy Look, is up. I, I agree that both Trump and Biden are extremely overwhelmingly likely to be the respective you know, nominees of their parties. And we are headed for a rematch. Something wild well, we could happen, I mean, but it's pretty likely. I, um, I, Trump's popularity with the Republican Party, his his him being the focal point, is, if anything, getting stronger in the wake of all these indictments and everything. Are, are, do you have any concern that Democrats are almost sitting too, are, are too, um, like, they think, oh, this is great, it'll be Trump again, we beat him once, we can do it again. When, but, but then when we see poll number, you know, 43-43, right, we talked about yes. that yesterday. Mm -hmm. It's still, it's so close. The last election was close. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there, it seems sometimes to me that Democrats want to be running, you know, they, they, they just, Describe Trump as this existential threat to democracy, but they want to be running against him because they Hillary Clinton despised him. That, yeah, she she him. wanted that, uh, mm -hmm. and, and like, are we doing that again? Well, the difference is now we have, uh, I think, he earned goodwill in 2016 because he didn't have a record. For the last three elections, what we know, let's just go with what we know. Mm -hmm. What we know is that in the last three election cycles, Independents have fled from the Republican Party for Democrats because they are running scared from this guy. They do not. They do not support President. Or they do not support Trump when it comes to the ballot box. At least in 2018, in 2020, and in 2022. So it's been a referendum on him three times. So now we're going for a fourth time. And it has been close. So that was the point of President Obama's message. We can't take anything for granted. The country is still divided. The, com the country is still tribal. Um, it was the seventh close election in history. Not, not terribly close. The president did win by six million votes. Uh, right. President Trump did not did lose to Hillary Clinton by three million votes. Um, right. I mean, he, and he could get even more votes next time. Yes. But it's it's not yes. the votes overall so, that matters, right? right. It's the voters in but Pennsylvania and Michigan correct. and Arizona correct. and Georgia. But it's not his legal issues that uh, Democrats are. His legal issues have proven he irrelevant. Like his his following and his supporters will be with him no matter what he does. So the noise out there with his his legal issues really. I, 
I don't even consider when, you, when you're talking about electoral politics, um, because really it's about what independents think, what independents care about. And all we can go on is what we know. That's why anybody else but Trump is pretty But are dangerous. you worried about a voter who says to themselves, who, you know, voted, maybe voted for Trump the first time, then, di then voted mm -hmm. for Joe Biden yeah. in 2020 because the COVID? antics of Trump during COVID yeah. were just beyond the pale yeah. and you were sick of this guy. Mm -hmm. And now you've had four years and maybe you're worried about the do. economy fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Trump's a little bit back of your mind now. You go, was it, you know, a lot of people even who don't like so much about Trump's behavior, liked the economy and 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 the the stability of the economic policies. Mm -hmm. Do you worry that they'll they'll pine for that and overlook? You know the the craziness that was so front and center when they voted for Joe Biden in 2020. I, I think I think I think it's possible. I don't know if it's enough to overcome the look. The pres President Biden had a 37, 38 percent approval rating going into the last midterm cycle. We had a 40-year high record high inflation. Yeah. And voters really voters did not punish President Biden or his party. Yeah, I, I appreciate and that. So, they did much better well, than I expected. And, and, and you also had the Dobbs decision. Yes, and exactly. exit polls showed you that it was was it a referendum on the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and the support of the Democratic Party and Biden's uh, presidency, mm -hmm. or was it a referendum on the fact that people just wanted to maintain the right to choose and were angry at Republicans? And, yeah. and if it's the latter, how do you maintain that going into an election year two years later when people's memories are short and when, frankly, there's also a lot of frustration that during the Obama administration, Despite running on a promise to codify Roe, he declined to do so, mm -hmm. in some people's cynical view, precisely so that the Democratic Party can continue to use it as a bully pulpit to get people to the polls. Mm -hmm. Well, look, we have to keep reminding them. I mean, that's what happened last cycle, right? Everybody thought it was going to be a referendum on the economy and on the 40 40-year high inflation, and it wasn't. It was about people don't like their, their rights taken away. And we have to keep Democrats, it's going to be their job, the campaign's job, to remind those people in Pennsylvania, those, you know, especially the suburban women who are swing voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, um, Arizona, Georgia, uh, and Wisconsin, uh, uh, to remind them that, that Republicans want to take away your rights and Democrats do not. 44 million Americans stood to benefit from student debt cancellation. Now they're facing the prospect of having their loans turned back on at the beginning of next month, uh, in, you know, in less, in less than a month. Um, they benefited from Donald Trump having uh, imposed a student debt moratorium for the last three years, and it's going to be Joe Biden who's responsible for turning it back on. What do you make of that? The moratorium was put in place during, during COVID. During COVID, yes. Right, okay. While Donald Trump was president. That's correct. And so now we've... President Biden has helped rescue the economy, bring back the jobs uh, back to pre-pandemic levels. So we're starting to um, reassimilate back to life uh, pre-COVID, at least. Um, and student loans are a part of that. Now, that was part of why he wanted to do legislation. The Supreme Court uh, interceded. So why agree to turn, in the context of the debt standoff, the debt ceiling standoff, the one significant concession that Joe Biden gave to the GOP was to commit to ending the student debt moratorium. Why? How does he, how does he look is, those 44 million is, Americans in the a, face? This is exactly why governing is never popular, but rhetoric usually is when you're running, when you're running on uh, a campaign uh, for the first time. Look, governing is hard, harder because it involves compromising. People don't like that. It's not, there's no instant gratification in that, right? Well, Long-term, there is. Long-term, he's hoping to get his legislation passed. I think a lot of Americans are going to be asking the question, why 
the people who were too poor to afford to go to college are the ones that had their financial futures uh, at the basis of the, the grand compromise and not any number of other people with a lot uh, more significant monetary interest in the country. there are other voters who think they should just pay back the debt the loans that, that they, they took out. That they if you're taking out take, loans, I, they are loans for a reason, right? <laughs> right. Well, I see a lot of agreement between someone is the Democratic Party and someone is in the Libertarian Party, and I think that there's a lot of working class and poor people who have a different kinds of populist interests. there are a lot of working being, class people who paid back are, their debts that are and being, would be resentful that they made different Make the, audience, make the argument to the audience. Uh, you don't have to make it to me, and the polls are behind me, and 44 million Americans are the ones who need to be convinced that they're lazy bums that should have paid back their loans. Is that the pitch that's going to get them to go vote for Joe Biden? I'm not sure that's the case. No, but what I will say is this, that elections come down uh, to a choice between two people. Uh, just really quickly, anecdotally, there's uh, somebody I met recently uh, who is lifelong, third-generation law enforcement. His whole family comes from a family of police officers and firefighters, and his dad was uh, on his way to go vote for um, Trump, and this, this man was going to vote for Joe Biden. And the father didn't understand why. And because this guy said, who do you want your, your, two, so your two grandsons um, to look up to? Who do you want them to be a role model? Who do, who do you want to be their role model, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Um, and ultimately, voting, like we talked about before the election, it doesn't always come down to uh, economics. It comes down to how you relate to a person's values and how you relate to the the other people, the people on the ballot that you have to vote for, because it's a personal choice and it's a choice between two people, and I think that choice is going to be pretty uh, easy to make. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, it's worth noting we are in a primary, and there are three Democrats running in the primary, and of course, Cornell West is also running as a Green Party candidate. We'll see if there's any other people that will announce uh, third-party campaigns as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. You're welcome. Anytime. We're rising right after this. New York Times opinion columnist David Brooks seems to be having a meta moment. In his latest piece, he asks if we're the problem here. The proverbial, the proverbial we seems to be the elite journalism class. Brooks writes, quote, over the last decades, we've taken over whole professions and locked everybody else out. When I began my journalism career in Chicago in the 1980s, there were still some old, crusty, working-class guys around the newsroom. Now we're not only a college-dominated profession, we're an elite college-dominated profession. Only 0.8% of all college students graduate from the super elite 12 schools, the Ivy League colleges plus Stanford, MIT, Duke, and the University of Chicago. But a 2018 study found that more than 50% of the staff writers at the beloved New York Times and the Wall Street Journal attended one of the 29 most elite universities in the nation. Writer Caitlin Johnstone writes, mainstream journalists are cloistered Ivy League educated trust fund kids. Rack War cheerleader David Brooks has an article in the New York Times titled, What If We're the Bad Guys Here? Another one of those tired old think pieces we've been seeing for the last eight years that asks, Golly gosh, could we coastal elites have played some role in the rise of Trumpism? Like it's the first time anyone has ever considered that obvious point. Journalist Glenn Greenwald highlighted this clip where Bacha Angar Sargon, former co-host of our show, visited with Bill Maher. Let's watch. Journalism mm. used to be a working class trade. It was a very low status job. Journalists lived in working class neighborhoods. They lived next door to factory workers and linemen. Jimmy Breslin. Exactly. Maybe a little bit more money than them. They saw themselves as outside of power, demanding justice on behalf of the little guy. 
Throughout the course of the 20th century, there was a status revolution among journalists to where journalism became basically a, an elite caste. It is now the provenance of basically people who are very, very, very highly educated, who come from rich, the rich parents who come from money. Um, journalists, I mean, of course, there are exceptions, but by and large, the pathway to becoming a journalist now is through the elites, through elite universities. And that has, as journalists ascended to the ranks of the elites, they abandoned the working class that they used to belong to. And I argue that today they're using a moral panic about race to distract from the ways in which they have benefited from income inequality in America. Uh, Sabacha obviously wrote a book about this subject. Uh, she's talked a lot about it on our program. Um, so David Brooks is, is basically wrote a column observing some of those same things. Some people, are, I guess, are dunking on him for, like, belatedly saying this when, like, lots of people, Bacha, lots of other people have been pointing this out for a while. But I, I don't think that under—it was a decent column. Uh, you can complain that it's coming so too late. So there's two camps. First of all, I would say that, to be clear, this column was not ex explicitly, exclusively about media. That's the part that everyone's talking about, because that's the part that everyone can kind of agree on. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be consensus on the left and the right that journalism is an elite, that there's barriers to— access to journalism um, because it's low paying, especially early jobs. You have to be able to basically work for free. And also because to get entry at these institutions, they care a lot about these kind of academic credentials that they didn't used to care about. Everyone agrees about that. That's what was kind of trending yesterday. Um, but the people on the left, like uh, Batia and um, uh, Caitlin Johnstone, are dunking on this because we've been saying this forever. It's been a concern. We've had this debate on the show about the problem with uh, the way that uh, news has been corporatized and centralized, and local newsrooms have gone the way of the dinosaur. People's obvious interests are when what's happening in their own communities. When they don't get any news about their own communities anymore, national news outlets have to figure out a way to get them to care about other sorts of things. And we get increasingly incendiary, um, polarizing news to keep people sucked in. Why should they care about something happening in Washington instead of in their small town? Well, if it's about someone coming for your kids or the woke squad or terrorism at the border, those are things that get people locked in. And is that actually good for uh, journalism broadly? But the part, the other, the rest of the the article got a lot of pushback from liberals because he was asking the question: Are we kind of liberal elites the problem? It is that we've been talking about Trumpism and blaming Trumpism and being confused about why so many people are uh, interested in Trump after all of these years. But it's part of the problem that we're unwilling to look ourselves liberal, not you know ourselves, we being liberal um, elites, and see how our policies and the way that we've been running the country when we're in charge is to the detriment of working class whites, largely, but working class people. Right, right. Uh, it's something, as you've pointed out, lots of lots of commentary reflecting on this, and David Brooks, um, you know, ex discussing a phenomenon that has been well documented, but I, you know, has a lot of is certainly animating a lot of the anger and vitriol to both major parties. Frankly, uh, you know, sentiments that Donald Trump um, tried to capture, sentiments that um, that very much inflame. Um, you know, right-wing voters right now, the, you know, the, the feeling of, you know, out-of-touch elites um, supporting bad policies, trying to harm you, um, order, you know, bossing you around, ordering you around, and also not yeah. having the same interests as you. It was the whole Bernie movement. I'm sorry, what's so frustrating about it as a leftist is that this was the whole case of the Bernie movement. At the time, people like David Brooks wrote it off as some white guy 
fringe issue and didn't look at the fact that the same people who were interested in Donald Trump in 2016 were interested in Bernie because he was talking about these exact same problems, these problems with trade, these problems with elite access being what advances people economically when that elite access is in fact elite because it restricts the overwhelming majority of people from getting there. And if, we, if we're going to talk about this problem in newsrooms, something that people like, I, I, I think Bhatia is exactly right about the diagnosis of the problem, but she also was an opponent to student debt cancellation and some of these, pro some of these policy solutions that are intended to bring down the barriers to accessing education. Bernie Sanders said, let's have free public colleges and universities so that we're no longer wrapped up into this hierarchical system where people feel like their lives are gonna be over if they don't get into, into Harvard. People feel that way because in some ways it is. To truly reach it to the top, you kind of do have to go to Harvard, and that's malarkey. So why don't we try to make a more equal education system where everybody can get access, even if your kids can't, your parents can't afford you to afford to drive Maybe you to violin we, lessons three we can times go a week. Back to, I support going back to policies by which college was not free, but affordable for the people actually uh, for the people enrolling in colleges. I, subsidizing it has not helped. Obviously, obviously, right now we have the worst of both worlds because it's subsidized on the front end. It, people are encouraged to spend, um, uh, to, to take out money to have, they, I mean, they, they feel like they have to, then they have to pay it back later. It distorts the price. It allows colleges to charge whatever they want with, you know, with, with no consideration of what is actually in the economic best interest of the people moving through the college. So we, I don't agree, obviously, on forgiving student loans, but we Here, do have a very broken thing. system. People can't afford, the reason I took so long to leave the law and become a journalist is because of healthcare. Am I going to be able to, as I'm freelancing, afford to pay my own healthcare costs so yeah. that if I get sick, I don't end up dying in a hospital like so many Americans are going bankrupt like so many Americans because they simply happen to contract an illness or fall ill in a way that they could not predict or safeguard against. If you really want to have more access to jobs, professional jobs like journalism, you have to think about things like Medicare for All, which is the biggest boon for anybody in any entrepreneurial uh capacity. If you want to start a business, the biggest health, the biggest cost for you is paying for healthcare for yourself and for your employees. Like, so, so we have to be having a broader conversation. I think David Brooks is right to be starting this, but it does feel like a little late and, and it's, it's deeply frustrating as a leftist that there's only this interest in populist policies when we're talking about them on the right and not the left, especially because these candidates on the right sometimes say the right thing. I will completely concede that Donald Trump had a good pitch in 2016 with respect to some of these populist issues. But at the same time, he, just like Joe Biden, just like Barack Obama, all take money, hand over fist from the pharmaceutical industry, and when they get in office, they don't change a thing because they're allowed to win on the condition that they maintain the status quo. And Bernie Sanders, by contrast, was someone who shirked that money and was able to have a whole career, 40 years in Congress, consistently fighting like he's doing right now for lowering prescription drug prices, as we talked about in another segment, because he doesn't actually take the money and those interest groups matter. That money talks. So I mean, this is a good start. This is a good start. Just, just for context, this is what is angering the liberals about this article. There's this paragraph in the beginning that says, um, uh, he, he describes the, the polarization of the, of the right. He says, this story begins in the 1960s when, the high, when high school grads had to go off to fight in Vietnam, but the children of the educated class got college deferments. It continues in the 1970s when the authorities imposed busing on working class areas in Boston, but not on the upscale communities like Wellesley where they, they themselves live. They sit around saying other people are racist for not wanting this, but they also exclude themselves from 
the, the bargain. The ideal that we're all in this together was replaced by the reality that educated class lives in a world up here and everyone else is forced into a world down there. Members of our class are always publicly speaking out for the marginalized, but somehow we always end up building systems that serve ourselves. The critique from the left is somehow we always end up building systems that serve ourselves. No, there is an analysis of why it is that well-meaning liberal elites always are self-serving and it's because money talks ultimately and people preserve systems that enrich themselves. And until you actually make both journalism and government accessible to ordinary people so that you don't have to be a, a, a multimillionaire like Vivek Ramaswamy to self-fund your own campaign or Michael Bloomberg or any of these other people who are running because they're rich and not because the people have thrown dollars behind them in support of their campaigns, then you're going to keep having not just a gerontocracy, but a class hierarchy where only millionaires are in our journalism institutions and only millionaires are in Congress and our policies are designed by the people who write them and cover them. I mean, that's true at the national level, but Congress is not, uh, being in government isn't for elected people at the state level, isn't particularly lucrative, um, nor is it, you know, it's something, you, know, you don't have to be a millionaire or gazillionaire to run at the state level. It, money helps a lot. Everyone knows that the biggest task as someone running for office is fundraising. And that's because even if it's a smaller scale, a smaller race, and obviously not a congressional standard, the person who is able to self-fund their campaign, self-fund paying $10 for every um, lawn sign that you're going to dis distribute around your neighborhood, those are costs that ordinary, ordinary people can't keep up with. I remember one of the first uh, uh, campaigns I covered, this was a congressional race, but the first campaigns I covered when I joined The Intercept back in 2008. 18 was between um, Carper in Delaware and uh, this woman who was running against him who had a hyphenated name that I'm missing right now. But what was so interesting about her is that she was genuinely working class. She was a single mother with a, a young kid, um, and she talked in the campaign trail about how you know, the donations also enabled her to afford diapers for her child, which otherwise she struggled to get at some times. And it was incredibly compelling, but ultimately she didn't stand a chance against an established incumbent candidate from a state that is known for its close relationship with the banking industry, the state that Joe Biden is from. He's a senator from MBNA. And I remember attending one of her rallies that was in the shadow of the Bank of America building in the main, like, downtown area uh, in, uh, in the city. And it was, it was both thrilling and compelling, and she did better than a lot of people expected, but there's just no chance for a candidate like that to ever make it when you're up against a moneyed machine, the likes of which exist in both corporate parties in America. So this, this, these columns are great. They're a good start, but unless you start talking about the systemic barriers in both education um, and politics to working people actually having a shot, it's all lip service. I mean, if the system needs to be rigged in their favor and that's the only way your candidates can win, isn't that a fundamental problem? The system problem is with the rigged message? in their favor because instead of having campaign finance no, laws, everyone is hypnotized by the efficacy. Look, you only get one vote. Everyone gets one vote. Oh, and Robbie. this idea the left has that we, oh, we're, old, we're defeated every time. We can't win. Our, our ideas are so popular. We can't win because we're being outspent. I mean, I'm, that sounds like excuse making eventually. So if you voters with the ephemeral democracy that we have, because again, we don't, there was that 2014 Princeton study that showed that there is zero relationship between the will of the voting public and what Congress prioritizes because of the interest of lobbying dollars. But if you think on a local level or in these kind of elections where you really do have the choice to vote for someone other than Joe Biden or Donald Trump in a primary, and you really do have the choice to vote for a third party candidate in a general election, use those votes to try to support people who actually do get grassroots 
donations and are willing to disavow donations from the kinds of interest groups that have made your life a living hell, then that's the only path forward. And to really talk to your representatives about how much you value campaign finance reform, which used to be a bipartisan priority because the overall majority of Americans understand that it's not one person, one vote. If millionaires and billionaires can buy their way into elections, get on ballots more easily than regular people, and then write the laws in their favor. That's the only way out of this. Okay, more rising after this. More Facebook files disclosures. Biden White House staffers berated Facebook employees over demands for special access to tools to target the platform's anti-vaccine and vaccine-hesitant users. This is according to emails obtained by Fox News. During a conversation regarding users posting about nosebleeds as potential COVID vaccine side effects, Biden's digital director, Rob Flaherty, asked, quote, since it's a global pandemic, can we give agencies access to targeting parameters that they would normally wouldn't be able to? Per Fox's reporting, Flaherty's request came about as the staffers weighed how to convince people who were worried about these side effects to take the vaccine anyway. A Facebook employee cautioned Flaherty that they had to be careful, adding, we all know people that have had the experience that think that Facebook is listening to them. Per Fox, the Facebook employee told Flaherty that something like an immediate generated message about nosebleeds might give users the big brother feel, but suggested they show the content on a delay to avoid setting off alarm bells among users. Quote, we shouldn't pay attention to those conversations, make sure that people see information, even if it's not right then. Sorry, we should pay attention, the Facebook employee said. So this is more emails from Rob Flaherty, who's a... Who's a uh, White House Biden official who has come up in a lot of the in, in the lawsuit he was referenced in Judge Doughty's decision for um, asking very directly, like the day or very shortly after Biden takes office, um, take down this post on Twitter that is a is an account that's a satire anti-Biden account. Um, so lots of communications between him and Facebook in some of these messages. Again, we, we know so much more than we used to now. Um, Flaherty and Andy Slavitt. Uh, Biden officials are frustrated with Facebook. They consider Facebook less compliant than other social media sites. Mm. Um, they're very uh, blaming. They're blaming of Facebook users. Courtney Rowe, another government official, says, um, well, if someone in rural Arkansas sees something on Facebook, it's the truth. What we need is help, you know, pushing back on the myths, on the, the things those, you know, those yokels see on Facebook. They always think it's true. Um, the Big Brother concerns um, and all of that—it's just very—it's uh, it, very in keeping with you know everything we've learned by now. Um, Flaherty also says, "My dream is for Facebook to play ball, like you're not playing ball. It's how we will get out of this effing mess. Um, we have to explain to the president why there's misinformation on the internet. We don't want to be in a position where we take down bad news. But if your goal as a company is to make it more likely that people will get the vaccine." This is Flaherty talking as if he's Facebook. Um, the Facebook employee just replies, uh, we can't ask news outlets to take down bad news. <laughs> um, so more evidence that uh, these very worrisome conversations were, ha were being had throughout the pandemic um, about what the content moderation policies are going to be with government officials participating at the highest levels, having you know, weekly... Um, uh, phone calls in addition to all the emails. Yeah, part of the concern raised in this article is about whether or not 
someone who is concerned about, who, who, who posts something on Facebook expressing concern about nosebleeds as a potential symptom of COVID, whether or not Facebook should push information about that to them. Right. Um, CDC recommendations, whatever the health recommendations were about that particular issue. And that was the colloquy we read about, well, if we do it too quickly, then it'll seem like Big Brother, like, like um, the government is watching. But we can do it later. And it seems to me that there's some very interesting parallels there between that and the way that the advertising model, generally speaking, works on Facebook, where people post public information and advertisers are known, the whole point of it is that the advertisers use that information to target you with ads on the app. That's how the apps make money. Um, and there's an interesting question about outside of government trying to influence Facebook's design, whether or not government, just like any other third party actor, can pay to use the public, the public information that we put out there to target you with their ads the same way that you know, women discover, like, the, their ad choices tell them they're pregnant before they know. Have you heard these stories? Yes, yes. Where something about your app or something about your watch tells you your, your hormone levels yeah. or you, you some, somehow people are, start getting, like, Pampers ads and they don't even realize they're pregnant. You know, what, you know, what is the line between corporations doing that and the government doing that for an ostensible public health service? I mean, the, I, I don't know how I feel about the government, you know, purchasing advertisements the way any private actor would be able to do it. Um, I mean, I would probably say that's not a good use of the government's money, but someone else could argue that it is. But, but the issue here is different, right? Because it's not just them you know, participating in, the, in whatever process Facebook allows for, for ads and influence. It, it's them you know, behind closed doors trying to um, preference their narratives by by and then you know and this is okay this is what's being debated by how much were they actually pressuring the companies to 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 peddle their narratives in a way that like you know other companies can't come in and say you know we're going to yank your regulatory authority or we're going to subject you to all this liability if you don't you know preference my my diapers or something right but the federal government can by virtue of having you know, exhaustive regulatory power say, yeah, we want you to preference our nosebleeds aren't associated with COVID messaging. And if you're not going to do that, we can, you know, punish you in all these ways. Yeah, wielding Section 230 as a threat is so obviously coercive and inappropriate. And it does really shadow any other question about whether the government may or may not have had a good public health interest in making asks that a company can then turn down. If the threat is as significant as repealing Section 230 is, then it's hard to imagine that the companies are really in a position where they can consent, you know? Right, right. That's, yeah, that's exactly yeah. What, uh, what we're worried about. And, and again, asking for things that are clearly um, making the executives, making Zuckerberg and Nick Clegg and these other people very uncomfortable. So it's not the case, you know, some people said, like, well, well, yeah, the government wanted them to censor stuff, but they were so eager to do it. They wanted to censor everything. We can see in these emails that they have profound um, Reservation. First Amendment free yeah. speech concerns, that this is, even if it happens to be legal, that it's philosophically very fraught, that they don't think it is their role to, like, police all bad news. I mean, Zuckerberg has said these things out loud, and him and his top People were, were actually saying this in conversations with each other and in their emails pushing back on some of the guidance they're getting. So it's not the case that they were just of their own volition falling in line with whatever. They, they wanted to do that anyway. Is the real lesson of the Twitter files that Mark Zuckerberg and some of these uh, CEOs yeah. weren't as evil as uh, they were 
framed as being, and that we're going to head back to a the halcyon years of 2011, where Mark Zuckerberg was considered we'll to be a, a good cool guy. guy. Yeah, <laughs> good guy. Maybe never a cool guy. Never a cool well, guy. Well, look, people, people needed. We all needed to think this through a little bit more because. The at the enforcement level, right when your account gets taken down or your post gets moderated, it, it's being done by the platform, and the visceral level of frustration was with the platform or with with Zuckerberg, with Dorsey, etc. But um, that's an understandable human impulse. Sure. But we're now we're we're seeing the rest of the story, and there was a lot more to it than that. And I, I hope, um, thanks to all the reporting on it, I, I hope people are really waking up to the fact that it, there was a lot more going on to be concerned about. Yeah, why transparency and these kind of disclosures are so important, and I hope much. we continue to get them going forward. Um, I would love to see some government action on at least letting us know what the government is up to and what these yes. companies are up to. Otherwise, we're, we're flying completely blind in the dark going forward, even though there's been these leadership changes at companies like uh, TwitterX. Yes, uh, more rising right after this. When it comes to UFOs, the genie is out of the bottle, and apparently it's not going back in. UFO documentarian James Fox is willing to bet $1,000 that more UFO evidence and whistleblowers will come out within a year from now. Let's watch. And, and, and knowing David Grush is under oath in his credentials, you, he, he said, I'll show you where they are. I know where they are. Like, how are you not going to call his bluff on that? There's just, this is coming out. How do I know this? I've also went to Washington for almost five weeks, just a couple months ago, and I met with a lot of the people that are working behind the scenes to get this out. They know that it's real, okay? It's just now it's a matter of how do we roll this out? How, and there is a lot of talking behind the scenes. I, I, I can assure you this is coming out, and you just wait when some high-resolution satellite imagery leaks out, that will be happening. First-hand witnesses are going to come forward. That will be happening. They can't put the genie back in the bottle, man. This is this is coming out. Only about a thousand dollars. But most 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 of the time people say like, "I'll stick my life on it. I'll get my left arm. I'll bet a million dollars." Okay. I bet. Right. Uh, I I like to bet a hundred dollars. <laughs> I like to make a couple hundred dollar like political <laughs> bets for you know what's going on in sure. the, um, and then I just quietly. Well, I, I pay them, but I tweet about them, and then I just later just, I never said that. I, I, I make make people whole, but uh, that's how we retain our pundit cards. Um, th this guy, look, that sounds great. Let's do that. Uh, let's see those satellite image, imagery. Let's hear from the firsthand witnesses. Let's have David Grush lead us all to the exact place where the crafts are kept. Um, it's just all, it's a lot of vibes right now. It's like more evidence will be coming out. No evidence has come out yet. So you're alluding so. to the fact that at the uh, UAP hearing, several Congress members asked him specifically, where is the stuff? Do you know where the stuff is? He said, is? I'll tell you if we go into a secret room. Yeah. And then you can send a strongly worded email to whatever actual person with power who stops this from being disclosed. That's my, that's my concern. I don't want to burst everybody's bubble. If there's, I want this stuff known. I want it to come out if that is the case that we're, this is being withheld from us. I think the American people have every right to know. I, I want to know. This is this would be again if it's really, you know, bodies of people flying crafts from 
from outer space, this would be the most, um, this would be the biggest revelation in like the history of mankind. And a lot of people think, are very persuaded that it's being kept hidden from us. And yes, we should, so we should know the truth. I just don't have any faith whatsoever that it won't just be either that there's nothing to it or it's just going to be continue to be hidden because well, why would it come out now? I think what he's saying is that because we have the testimony and because one would hope that those Congress members did follow up and get the information they needed in the secret room, uh, the private room, or uh, they did identify off camera where the locations of the bodies and the crafts were. Because again, in the hearing, he specifically said, I can tell you where the crafts have been kept, that there will be that follow-up and that more is coming, right? That's the promise here that, yes, the dam has broken and that more is coming. Now, you're just so pessimistic after the COVID origin disclosures. Congress passed bipartisan bill that the federal government would have to disclose what it knows and what it thinks about COVID's origins. Biden signed it. Then we had, you know, reporting from uh, Michael Schellenberger from the Wall Street Journal that there was that the people initially who got sick were COVID were in the lab. Uh, the Energy Department and the FBI have concluded that the lab leak is more likely. So there is some underlying intelligence. Maybe it's that. Maybe it is that the U.S. government actually can confirm that those people were sick or something equally strong or something like that. And they were supposed to disclose it, and they just put out like another basically a press release saying, "Here's what we think." But I, no, I want to know why you think what you think, and that's what I thought we were getting. But we still don't get any closer to the truth. Do you not think there's a difference between, you know, files, emails, evidence about COVID mm -hmm. origin, and a dot on a map where apparently there is an alien spacecraft being kept by the U.S. government? If there is actually that alien spacecraft, that would be huge. I expect there is not, but I know I'm far apart from you and many of our viewers on this. But yes, take us, take us to the X on the map. Um, I'll get the shovel and we'll find out the truth of it. Well, if you missed it, here's one of the bombshell moments from the UAP hearing when retired Commander David Farver described his encounter with a UFO. Flying, who was the best? Now, is it true that you saw, in your words, a 40-foot flying tic-tac-shaped object? That's correct. Or for some people that can't know what a tic-tac is, it's a giant flying propane tank. Fair enough. Did this object come up on radar or interfere with your radar or the USS Princeton? The Princeton tracked it, the Nimitz tracked it, the E-2 tracked it. We never saw it on our radars. Our fire control radars never picked it up. The other airplane that took the video did get it on a radar. As soon as it tried to lock it, it jammed the radar, spit the lock, and he, he rapidly switched over to the targeting pod, which you can do in the, uh, the F-18. From what you saw that day and what you've seen on video, did you see any source of propulsion from the flying object, including on any potential th thermal scans from your aircraft? No, there's none. There's no uh, IR plume coming out. Uh, and Chad, who took the video, went through all the EO, which is black and white TV, and the IR modes. And there's no visible signs of propulsion. It's just sitting in space at 20,000 feet. In, in your career, have you ever seen a propulsion system that creates no thermal exhaust? No. Can you describe how the aircraft maneuvered? Uh, abruptly, uh, very determinate. It knew exactly what it was doing. It was aware of our presence. And it had acceleration rates. I mean, it went from zero to matching our speed in no time at all. Now, if the fastest plane on Earth was trying to do these maneuvers that you saw, would it be capable of doing that? No, not even close. And just to confirm, this object had no wings, correct? No wings. Now, was the aircraft that you were flying, was it armed? No, never felt threatened at all. 
If, if the aircraft was armed, do you believe that your aircraft or any aircraft in possession of the United States could have shot the Tic Tac down? I'd say no, just on the performance, it would just left in a, in a split second. It looks like that we have a problem here that needs further investigation. <laughs> yes. Now, because Fravor is esteemed, highly ranked, willing to give such specificity, I know that much of that had been in the public record for some time, but hearing it all laid out in that context, the reasons he believed it was a non-human spacecraft, the acceleration, the inability to perceive any method of propulsion, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the, the, the fact that accelerating in the way that it did would create G-forces that would not be with able, a human would not be able to withstand. All of that together either is the biggest, this is in people's minds, is either the biggest ruse imaginable, someone willing to tank their career and their public rep reputation for seemingly no reason, although there of course could be private inducements, we never know what's going on behind the scenes, or it's real. Is that not compelling to you? Well, Are you not entertained? <laughs> no. Uh, no, I look, I, I'm sure I don't, I say that I don't think he's making this up. I don't think he's being deceptive. I think he saw exactly what he's describing. And for all I know, he did see exactly what he's describing. So, and if he did see it, then yes, it could be, a, it could be an otherworldly craft, or it could be technology that our government or foreign government has that has not been disclosed, which I find most likely. Even um, though the technological leap seems to be significant in his telling? This is him looking out a window and seeing something. How can... Can you tell how fast a car is moving if you look at the road? Yes, if I were a You're like that's going career 56 fighter miles pilot, per hour. No, you couldn't. If I were a career navy pilot and I know that I was, you know, uh, you know, in a specific spot based on radar and all of the ways that as a pilot I know where I am positioned in the air and how I navigate. And then I'm flying away from it, knowing the capacity of my vessel, how fast it can travel over a certain amount of time, and then instantly the thing that was behind me and that it took me three minutes to get away from is now ahead of me in a way that would take me three minutes to get to, I'm making up these numbers, but you know what I mean. Then yes, I, I would be gold and stunned and have some sense of the technical performance of the, of the craft, which to your point could be explained by either US or foreign technology that has been kept under wraps, or if, you know, it could be something otherworldly. And the question is, how much do we believe, like, is there is there a point at which the technical ability of a craft, even if we can concede that we don't know everything we know about what the U.S. military is capable of or anybody else's military is capable of, at a certain point, what does the technology have to do for you to be, like, conclusively, oh, this can't be man-made? Disappear? It has to be more than described to me. I have to like see it. <laughs> well, there is there is the video of this encounter. It's just not very good. It never is, is it? Look, at the end of the day, there's one way we can settle this debate, discussion forever. We need to see the actual craft that is described or whatever the government is alleged to have. Again, David Grush says they have the craft, they have the bodies. That would clear all this. Then we have to don't have to have an argument about, oh, is the technology too advanced that theoretically it could even be our we can just see the actual thing. They've said they have the actual thing. Let's see it. All right. Well, I want to hear what you guys have to say. Please do weigh in on this one in the comments. Uh, and we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, actually, on Rising, Jessica Burbank and Shermichael Singleton will be taking the reins. Be sure to share, uh, like, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available in podcast form as well. 
It's been fun. It's nice having you back from vacation, Brianna. It's good to be back, Robbie. All right, see you later. Bye-bye.